Let's turn in the Word of God to the book of Numbers if you have a Bible with you. If you don't, maybe you can look over at your neighbor if they have one, or if they don't have one, just listen closely. I will try to read the Word of God distinctly, and I will remind you that I'm not reading to you man's opinion. This isn't my idea or the idea of some scholars. This is God's Word that has been preserved through the ages and is now here for you to hear. Numbers chapter 21, Numbers the 21st chapter, and the 5th verse. And this is speaking about the ancient people of Israel, who at this point in time were in the desert being led by God. And it's very interesting that Brother Joshua was sharing about his relationship with his parents, because that really has something to say to these verses here, because essentially, at this point in time, the God of the universe, the God who made all things, was directing Israel and wanted so very much to provide for them as their father. And he was indeed doing that, but this is their reaction at one point in time in that desert. Numbers 21, verse 5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now, if that were an accurate accusation, if that were how God really behaves, then perhaps they'd have a just ground for complaint. We could see it. If God brought them out of a situation of prosperity, out to a desert, and didn't take care of them, and there was no food and water, then indeed, they would have a just reason to say, God, you haven't been good to us. And yet, the history, as you read through the book of Numbers, is quite different. And even their own statements kind of give us a hint here, because they say, there is no food and water, our soul loathes, this worthless bread. Okay, wait a minute. Which is it? Is there bread or isn't there bread? Now, bread's kind of a a shorthand, if you will, for saying food. We talk about, give us this day our daily bread. That was part of the prayer the Lord taught to the disciples. Is there food or not food? Well, yeah, there's food, they're saying, but we don't like it. It reminds me a bit of uh, some dear folk that took me out to lunch today, and uh, I had um, what did you call it, brother? An MI? Is that the medical term in the ER? Myocardial infraction or something? Uh, in, in what? Infarction. I can say that in public? Okay, good. See, I didn't go to medical school, so I should just leave that stuff alone. Suffice it to say, my hosts at lunch brought out these big containers of salad. And I had been at the men's room, and I came back, and here was this lovely just practically a tower of Babel of salad. I don't think I had seen so much salad at one place in the Yosemite Valley. The thing you have to know, I'm going to just come clean here, I hate salad. And, and my wife is standing over there looking at me like, well, they have salad, you know? And I'm thinking, I'm going to die. What am I going to do? All they have is salad. And I like these people. I don't want to hurt their feelings, but I hate salad. Thankfully, about that time, the brother rounded the corner with a stack full of pizzas. Now, really, honestly, that was a matter of preference. 
I couldn't complain. If they had just brought out salad, they had provided. They had spent good money to buy this salad. I'm sure too much good money in this valley from what I've seen. And, and they had lovely looking salad. If that is what you're into, I'm sure it was very good salad. And I know my wife enjoyed it. But it just wasn't my preference. I said, I don't like it. So the thing here is, Israel is saying, now God, you brought us out here. And okay, you're offering us something, but we don't want it. We don't want what you're providing. God was providing bread from heaven. The Bible calls it manna. It means, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. And yet it kept them alive day by day. And it was a reminder every day, our life is on loan to us from God. We are here because of the goodness of God. And that's really what I want to talk to you about tonight. It's the matter of unthankfulness. It's a very serious problem. Because most of the people I've ever met who aren't believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sense that the New Testament speaks about a person who has a real, living, vibrant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that saves them because they've put their faith in him to save them based on what he did on the cross and what he did by rising from the dead. We've had that described very well tonight by Brother Joshua. Other than people like that, everybody else I've ever met, if I've asked them, they almost always say something to this effect. I'm pretty much a good person. Now, that opinion usually stands up as long as it's not tested. I mean, I can sometimes think of myself. I'll just tell my own faults here that that I'm a very patient individual. And I'm very long-suffering with other human beings. I'm great that way. When I'm sitting in my lazy boy recliner at my house, and I have a nice cup of tea there, and I'm reading a book that I enjoy, and I've got some lovely classical music on, I feel like the most placid, at peace with the world sort of individual. I just love everybody. And then I go out on the Schuylkill Expressway outside of Philadelphia. And I say, what? What are you doing? Pedals on the right! Or you, hey, you're going too fast. Pull it over, buddy. And I start yelling at the other cars. And I start getting annoyed and say, what kind of idiots? Did they get their license out of a a Cracker Jack box? And there go all my pretensions of basically being a patient, long-suffering, nice person. See, when I'm tested, it's a different story, oftentimes. Well, the Israelites thought they were pretty good children for God. They basically thought they had held up their end of the deal and that God wasn't holding up his end. That they weren't really satisfied with the kind of life God had given them, so they started to complain. And God accordingly sent them what the Bible describes as fiery serpents. Snakes whose bite was clearly venomous. Perhaps it had a burning feeling. People that have been bitten by venomous snakes describe it that way. Or there are venomous snakes in that part of the world that kind of have a copper type of color. And indeed, in that area where they were encamped at the time, there are even copper mines. So maybe it's a play on the word for copper and the color of the snake. I don't know, but it was bad news because those snakes started biting people and people started dying. All of a sudden, they took interest in a prayer meeting. You don't care much about pharmacology. You don't care much about antidotes that are being developed till you're infected with a disease. 
Then you want to read all the data, don't you? Then you want to call up the FDA and say, what's in trials? What can you fast track that may save my life? And suddenly they said to Moses, pray to the Lord for us. And here's what the Lord said to them. Moses, you take a metal snake and you nail it to a pole, a bronze serpent. You nail it to that pole. And when people look at that snake, they're going to live. It sounds a bit like an odd remedy, but I'm going to explain why God did it that way in a little while. Let me get back to the matter of gratitude. Because their sin, after all, was not sexual immorality. It was not drunkenness. It was not going out and getting stoned on some mind-altering substance. It was not absconding with somebody else's life savings, the, the Bernie Madoff trick. It was not anything like that. All they did against God was complaint. Something that we probably hear every day of our lives in this world. Something that is so common, we might say it's ubiquitous, we become inured to it. It, We're kind of jaded to it. It doesn't at all phase us when we hear people murmur and complain, or maybe when we ourselves complain. But I want to give you an illustration that I hope will put it in perspective for you. Because you may be sitting there thinking, hey, what's the problem here? Okay, so they complained against God, but why did God send these snakes? Why did they have to die? I mean, is what they were doing really that serious? And I'm going to say, yes, it is that serious. Now, we already had Brother Jay Stratman open the meeting in prayer tonight, and they have a very good book that describes their experience, a true story of how their son Daniel, in surgery, had a traumatic brain injury that was radically life-altering. And as amazing a story as that part of it is, What I'm more impressed by is when I look at their family and I see the bond that there is between the Stratman family. Now, I don't just come up here and hang out with them for a few days in Yosemite. I've known them for years. Not as long probably as Brother Steve has known them and perhaps not as deeply as Brother Steve has known them. But I've known them for a considerable amount of time. We've been together in a number of different places. So I feel like I'm a person who can comment on this aspect of their life. And something I see in them that I've seen in other parents that have disabled children, I described it to them today, and I asked their permission, by the way, to even speak about their situation. I said, you know, with parents like you and families like yours, I see the Lord working in you and giving you some kind of another gear, is how I described it. Because I've seen families like them, and what I've seen in them is a tenderness and a compassion and a sensitivity to others that is all too rare in this world. It's an incredibly beautiful thing. I don't say that to puff them up. I will tell you clearly, if you don't know them, it's not because they're naturally that way. It's because of the working of God in their life. It's because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I too have a disability, much, much less serious than what my brother and friend Daniel has. I am also under that grand diagnosis of cerebral palsy. I was three months premature as a baby. 
And here's where my example parts company with theirs, because I look at them and I see how people sometimes say, why can God allow this evil thing to happen? Why can God allow such a calamity to befall this? Why do bad things happen to good people? And I look at their lives and I say, well, there's a lot of deep issues we have to talk about with that question. But one thing I can see is that even in the midst of tragedy and difficulty and hardship, God can bring out things that are incredibly beautiful. Fruit that only comes under the north wind of suffering. That is what I can see in families like the Stratmans. But let me describe my relationship with my parents, if I can illustrate this matter of unthankfulness. I was born three months premature. I was given up for dead by the doctors. They told my parents, don't get attached to him. He's not going to live. Eventually, they said only a 30% chance of survival. Obviously, I survived. I weighed two pounds, seven ounces when I was born. I've made great strides since then, as you can tell. And after several months in the hospital, my parents brought me home. The interesting thing that the doctors said, I don't know if it was ever written up in JAMA or the New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet or any of those prestigious publications, but the doctors noticed a change in my health as a premature baby. They said, you know, when you come into the room to my mother, whose name is Patricia, when you come into the room and you put these gloves on and you handle that baby in the incubator where he was. I wasn't quite done. They had to put me back on for more, you see. And when you speak to him, that's when we noticed a change. And my parents said, you know, it's not us. It's that we're praying people. We've asked the Lord to give us this child. Unbeknownst to me, my mother prayed a Hannah prayer, like Hannah in the Bible, who asked God for a man so that he could be a preacher and a help to God's people. My mother prayed that for me. I didn't know that till I was already out preaching. So God was working. And I can't even begin to describe to you all the many years of taking me to physical therapy and of watching me go through surgeries and of watching me do the rehab afterwards and of sitting by my bed and I've told people many, many times anything I've suffered, which by the way is nothing in comparison with what Daniel has suffered or many of my other friends have suffered. I'm not holding myself up here as some kind of person who suffered greatly. But I can tell you that in every pain I had, in every difficulty, that my parents, and particularly my mother, felt it more keenly than I did. That as painful as it was for me, it was worse for them. I always suspected that. But I really only began to understand it when I had children of my own. And when I thanked God that although he had worked in my life so much through my disability, taught me so much, continues to use it to this day, although I firmly believe it's the will of God and his purpose for me, and he's used it for good, I still rejoiced when every one of my children was born healthy. And I still said, God, please, don't let them suffer what I suffer. I don't want to see it as a father. I don't want to endure what they went through. And yet, do you know that through the long nights of pain when my mother would come and minister to me and take care of my needs and help me, 
that it was still possible for me to grow into a teenager and a 20-something and a 30-something, and I'm sad to say a 40-something, who can still mouth off to his mother. You would think that my mother had earned the right to have inalienable respect, that every moment of every day I would venerate the ground she walks on and not only thank God and honor my father and mother because he gave me good parents who love me and because his word commands me to do that, but because of all she had done for me, you would think that I would be respectful. And yet so often I've lost my temper with my mother. So often I've said things like Brother Joshua described, not cursing my mother, but saying things that are just as bad, speaking to her unkindly. And yet, I would have the temerity to think that as a human being, I'm a good person. What kind of person takes all of that ministration, all of that service, all of that love, all of those tears, all of those years of meeting my needs and helping me and caring for me, and then I can be bitter and I can be angry and I can be hurtful and I want to call myself good? No, sir. No, ma'am. I am not here tonight as a good man, a person who, because of what he's done, has eternal life or a hope of heaven. That's not me. I'm a sinner who deserves judgment. I deserve what the Israelites got because I am ungrateful. It's one of my character flaws. Now, I try not to be. And like our brother, I pray about my faults. And God, the Holy Spirit, works in the lives of believers to change them. But let's come clean here. We Christians will be honest with you tonight that we're not perfect that we still fail. And we're not telling you, come to Jesus Christ so you can be like us, because many times we're a bad example. The best we can say is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, when you see me living in the power of the Spirit, living like the Lord Jesus Christ, do that because he's the one you want to follow. Ingratitude is such a serious sin, the sin of unthankfulness, the sin of taking from God good, your life, your bodies, your health, your friends, your family, your education, your job, any money you have, the country you live in, and a myriad of other things that we could name that you have by the providence of God. And yet I ask you tonight, have you ever thanked God for these things? So many of us go years and never stop to even think about God. We expect it as a matter of course. Of course, God will be good to me. I mean, heaven will be a brighter place for having me in it, won't it? Not if the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't change you. Not if he doesn't save you. Not as if, he, if he doesn't do what he did to Joshua and what he did to me and what he's done to so many others where he makes us a new creature. Because he says, you know, you're ungrateful. But here's why I had Moses nail that snake on the pole. Hmm. Now the very first time we meet a snake in the Bible, it's a bad story. It's a true story that explains a lot about the world, why the world's so messed up, why there is so much pain and sorrow 
It's because of sin in the world. It's not God's fault. People always want to try and turn around and blame God. No, it's our fault. Like Gilbert Keith Chesterton, nice middle name, like Gilbert Keith Chesterton once wrote in answer to a contest, and I wouldn't agree with a lot of what Mr. Chesterton believed, but here on he hit it right on the head. The newspaper asked the question, what is wrong with the world today? And he answered, dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. Keith Kaiser is what's wrong with the world. You are. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It started with our very first ancestors who fell for a lie as Satan used a serpent to preach a message to them and say, basically, you can have the good stuff, you can have the gifts, you can have the good life and not have God. You can go out and be your own God, live your way. And be like God. God doesn't want competition. That's why he's holding out on you. And instead of being content with what God gives, and instead of seeking God himself, they turned from God and they sinned. And they brought sin into the world and they brought death and they brought all kinds of other horrible things. But we've replicated that mistake over and over again. So what happens? Well, God sends his son into the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. He could say, no man has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven. And why did this one come down from heaven? The Lord Jesus explains in John 3, the Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You ever wonder about that cross of Jesus Christ? What is so big a deal about the cross of Christ? Weren't thousands of people in antiquity crucified? Weren't two other men, according to the New Testament, crucified the same day that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified? What's the big deal about the cross? Well, here you have a man who was not only innocent of the religious charges put against him and innocent of the secular charges put against him. You have a man who actually was perfectly righteous and holy. A man who every day of his life always did it God's way, always pleased the Lord because he himself is God. He came into this world, the son of God manifest in the flesh. And he lived a life where he could say, I do always those things which please my father. So while I can stand here and with shame tell you that I've not always respected my parents the way I should or been kind to them, the Lord Jesus could stand before you and say, I've always respected God the Father. I've always done it his way. And what's more, those earthly step-parents he gave me, Joseph and Mary, I submitted to them too. And no one could lay any charge or any sin against the Lord Jesus. You see, the Lord Jesus wasn't complaining against God. And if he had been in the desert with the Israelites physically there as a man, he wouldn't have been bitten by those snakes because he didn't complain. And yet the source of the cure for those people that were dying from the poison of that serpent that poison of sin that we're all afflicted with because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That even as they were dying of that, God took the image of the thing that was killing them and put it on a pole and lifted it up and said, now you look to that. See, bronze is a metal in the Bible that was used in altars. It can withstand flame. 
It's associated with judgment. And the Lord Jesus, when he hung on that cross, the Bible says he became the very thing that he wasn't. God treated him like he was a rebel. God treated him like he was a sinner. God treated him like he was me and put on him the judgment that my sins deserve. God did the same thing to him for you. He put your sin on the Lord Jesus. And he judged the Lord Jesus. And now he says, here's how you get eternal life. You look at the one who became the thing that God hates. The one who was judged for sin. Even though he himself was sinless and pure. You look to that one and you say, God has already poured out the judgment on him. And now he turns and says to you, as a risen one, as one who comes back from the dead, a historically verifiable truth. There were eyewitnesses. There are ancient sources that speak about it, that go right back to the generation of the eyewitnesses. And they tell us the Lord Jesus Christ physically rose again from the dead. And the risen Christ didn't rise from the dead and say, Ha! I have come back and now I'm going to destroy you all. No, he said, come to me and be saved. He said, look at what I did for you. Look at how I died on the cross for you. You've been ungrateful. You've been unthankful. You've done so many things against me and against my word. And you've not cared about me. You've totally neglected God in your life. It doesn't matter. You can make a fresh start. Don't start trying to be good. Any more than one of those Israelites could start to try to get a Dixie cup straw, you know, and try to suck out the poison. Wouldn't work. Don't start trying to amend your life and say, well, I'll be better. (laughs) One of the men crucified by the Lord Jesus knew all he could say was, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He couldn't turn over a new leaf. He was about to die. And who knows if you're not. All you can do is come to the Lord and throw yourself on his mercy and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, don't judge me. That's what I deserve. I know you judged your son instead of me. Instead, save me. Give me eternal life. The Lord Jesus says, whoever comes unto me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now, I'm not going to give you the hard sell. I'm not going to ask you to stand or put up your hand or sign anything or come forward. But I want you to know that while I can't read your heart tonight, God can. That man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart is what the Bible says. And God knows your heart. God knows if you're pretending like Joshua used to be. God knows what you're trusting in today. God knows if you're thankful for the death of his son and if you've come to put your trust in him for salvation. If you haven't, God knows it. And the Lord Jesus says to you, if you haven't believed, you don't have to wait for the verdict. The verdict's in. You're condemned already. You're under judgment. God says you deserve everlasting flames. But the beauty of the gospel is you can change tonight. You can repent. You can say, God, you're right about me. I'm a sinner. I do deserve that judgment. Save me a sinner. You don't have to say it my way. You don't have to use those very words. If that's the intention of your heart and you cry out to God to come into your life and change you and make you a new creature and save you from who you are and what you deserve, the Lord Jesus says, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. In other words, you cannot be turned down, as the life insurance people say. 
You come to the Lord Jesus, he won't say, no, you're too bad. No, you're too late. As long as you have life, as long as you're in this world, you can respond. You can respond tonight. But I would urge you not to put it off because we are not promised tomorrow. Our brother said, the Lord Jesus is coming. And for we who know the Lord Jesus, that's a blessed prospect. We look forward to that. But it may not even be that. Even if he doesn't come tonight or soon, you may be called into eternity. Many are. The Bible says it is appointed once for a man to die, but after this, the judgment. Where will you stand in the judgment? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you say, I stand in him. I stand accepted in the beloved. God won't condemn me. I'm already declared righteous because of the Lord Jesus. But if you don't know him tonight, Nothing you can say or do will change or alter that verdict. Come to Christ tonight and be saved. Father, we're thankful tonight for this gospel. It is good news that people like us can be saved. We don't deserve it. We can't believe it sometimes. We're just in wonderment, in awe, that God would so love the world that he'd send his only begotten son to die on that cross to suffer the judgment, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, do thy work tonight by the Spirit. Convict men of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. I use that term generically. It might be a woman here. It might be a girl. It might be a little one. Father, if the Spirit is knocking on the door of their heart and telling them of their sin and their need, we pray they wouldn't put it off that they'd get right with God tonight by believing on the Lord Jesus. In the Lord Jesus' name we ask. Amen.